Two weeks into Israel's war on Gaza, what the world is witnessing, the calls for blood by Israeli leaders, the erasing of Palestinian lives, the vast majority of them civilians, bears the hallmarks of an historic crime and the warning signs of a looming genocide. Israeli leaders aside, one person with the power to put a stop to this is the American president, Joe Biden. On his visit to Israel this past week, Biden made clear that is not his intention. Standing alongside Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, he backed the escalation of full-scale invasion. And the media, too, have the ability, the responsibility to raise the alarm, at least in theory. On this special edition of The Listening Post, we look at the role they are really playing. The Israeli journalists demanding more war crimes. The big tech platforms and European governments suppressing voices of dissent. And the Western news outlets falling back into some old habits, just adding fuel to the fire. They are burying the context, which after more than half a century of Israeli occupation, is burying the lead. One of the challenges for any reporter covering a war zone, where news breaks quickly, bombs strike repeatedly, and the blame game is played by both sides, is to keep the context in mind. In the horror, confusion, and finger-pointing that followed the bombing of Al-Akhli, the Baptist hospital in Gaza, there is some valuable context on offer, and journalists don't have to go back years to find it, just a matter of days. A few days before this hospital was attacked, they were shelling of the hospital. The IDF had said, this is a warning to you, you need to evacuate, take out your staff and patients, which for a hospital in a war zone is arguably impossible. As the hospital manager said, only in Gaza would a warning be given by shells. And uh, of course, this is happening in a context where uh, the Israeli military has dropped 6,000 bombs on the Gaza Strip. More bombs than were dropped by the American military over Afghanistan for an entire year uh, in a space that is 1,800 times smaller than Afghanistan. Another video that's filmed from the north. We've put this in There is a surplus of suppositions, theories, and allegations on who perpetrated the attack on the hospital. They are worth examining. In the immediate aftermath of the strike, there was a tweet from a social media advisor to Prime Minister Netanyahu. It was deleted within two hours. There was a map released by the Israeli army showing where it said Palestinian fighters launched a rocket that misfired in midair and hit the hospital. But the launch location on that map contradicted an earlier Israeli statement. The official Israeli narrative included some of Al Jazeera's coverage. You don't need to get proof from me. All you need to do is switch over to Al Jazeera, who broadcasted it live. A clip showing the projectile, its launch angle, its disintegration, then crashing and exploding on impact. In another video, however, verified by other news sources, you hear a whistle, a screeching sound, just before the hospital gets hit. That is not the sound a falling rocket makes. Then there was the recording of what Israel says is a phone call it intercepted between two Hamas operatives. Arabic language specialists, however, have dismissed that recording as fake. <laughs> Scripted. The accents, terminology, and syntax all seem off. The voices don't seem to be Gazans. Amidst all of the confusion and the occasional misdirection is more context which is indisputable. 
In the occupied territories, the fog of war is usually a fog of Israel's own making. When Israel regularly operates in the West Bank or Gaza, a civilian is killed, which happens pretty much every single day. Pretty much in every single case, the Israeli military has denied that they were involved, they were not at fault. In virtually every single case, that is proven to be a lie. If any journalist presumes that what a military or government is saying is true in war, they should get their head checked because lying is part of the agenda. The Israeli military controls the information environment. If they put out a couple of hand puppets talking to each other and said that this was, you know, secret conversations of Palestinian militants, there would be no way to independently verify this. I would treat uh, any information uh, coming from uh, the Israeli government, particularly given their history of misleading uh, journalists with tons of skepticism. U.S. President Joe Biden brought none of that on his visit this week when he said he has Israel's back. Based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team, not, not you. Which is notable, given that six months ago, Biden would not give Benjamin Netanyahu the time of day, refusing to meet with the Israeli prime minister. Biden reportedly disapproves of Netanyahu's efforts to gut Israel's justice system and allow parliament and the most extremist government in the country's history to ignore decisions of the courts and impose their will on the country. But there he was in Tel Aviv, side by side with that same government, promising Israel even more American weaponry one week after Biden bought into and recited Israel's Hamas beheads baby story, which proved to be as real as Iraqi WMDs were post 9-11. I never really thought that I would see and have confirmed pictures of terrorists beheading children. And that was based on fake news. And so, I mean, we're all subject to this fake news that's going around us and we have to be very careful, all of us, but when the leader of the most powerful country in the world says it, it's much more problematic. If what we are seeing in Gaza proves to be the early stages of genocide, Israel's news media will end up with blood on their hands. For decades, Israeli politicians and news outlets have dehumanized Palestinians, normalized their ethnic cleansing. Now they are amplifying calls for extermination. Military figures commentators, even entertainers like this singer, routinely calling for genocide in Gaza. Numerous Israeli journalists have echoed those calls in their posts on social media. Those murderous messages are violations of international law and for good reason. As historians have repeatedly reminded Israelis, genocides don't just happen. There is a pattern. In Nazi Germany in the 1930s and Rwanda in the 1990s, they were preceded by politicians using the mass media to dehumanize the enemy and get audiences on side. 
to prepare the ground for some of the ugliest acts in human history. These sort of propaganda channels have always promoted this kind of idea that it's either that we attack them or we will be attacked and killed. Israeli outlets say that the Israeli military and Palestinian armed groups are equal in weight and therefore we can use this kind of force against them. And what's happened in the last few um, weeks, unfortunately, is that that all is on crack, that everything that was at a one or two level is now at a nine and ten level. It's reminiscent of other conflicts and other genocides that have happened in the past, and that is truly terrifying. You have a fragmented society. And what is gluing now the Israeli society together is this retribution against Hamas. I would even say genocidal retribution. And that is a very dangerous moment. And that's what I've been seeing on the Israeli TV. <laughs> Mainstream media outlets in the U.S. are also showing their colors with reporting that revolves around Israel's perspective, its victimhood. I can only imagine uh, how terrifying this has been for you. In covering the industrial-scale slaughter in Gaza, there is far less empathy. Worse yet, critics are being marginalized. Palestinian commentators brought on to speak during live newscasts say that those channels have failed to share the segments online, as they normally do. A few days after the Hamas attack on Israel, MSNBC viewers noticed that three of the network's most prominent hosts, Mehdi Hassan, Eamon Mohyeldin, and Ali Velshi, had their shows taken off the air. MSNBC said the changes to its programming were coincidental, the result of a shift to more live coverage of the war. But there was not so much as a tweet from any of the three journalists sidelined, which was uncharacteristic of them and quite telling. All three of the hosts are Muslim and have been critical of Israel. The idea that it's even remotely controversial to call what Israel has imposed on Palestinians a form of apartheid is laughable. Their absence from the airwaves, even if temporary, deprived the network's viewers of some informed points of view, different ones. What that does is it excludes a, a, a critical perspective from this conversation. 90% of Gazans have no access to clean drinking water. The UN Secretary General called it hell on earth. How much more hellish is it going to get in the coming days? And partially because of the lack of nuanced and, and balanced takes in the aftermath of 9-11, the calamity of the Iraq war happened in the first place. In the aftermath of the October 7th operation, there's been a clamoring to actually uh, deter and discourage uh, nuanced analysis. They want to kill the Jews just like the Nazis did. I am tired of appeasing uh, the, uh, Hamas. Without nuanced explanation of the roots of, of this, we are going to return to the same situation that, that got us here in the first place. What I've heard from journalist friends covering this war is they're experiencing editors really um, muzzling their correspondents, their presenters, and really talking about how they shouldn't be discussing the context and the nuance behind the attacks.
against the Israeli citizens, that that is not, you know, something that will be acceptable to the public. Every couple of minutes there's a rocket being shot. So this is life that no one can deal with. And they may be right that right now, certainly a lot of the American public will not stomach a discussion on occupation and siege that has led to this anger and violence. But that doesn't mean that as journalists we ignore that and not try and explain to viewers where this comes from. Talking about the root causes, it's not about justifying it, it's, a, it's about trying to solve it. Voices have been silenced in the UK as well. Six reporters at BBC's Arabic language channel taken off the air, investigated for their social media posts. Political cartoonist Steve Bell had been with The Guardian newspaper for 42 years until last week. His caricature of Benjamin Netanyahu self-inflicting a scar shaped like the Gaza Strip got Bell fired. It was censored by his editor, who deemed it anti-Semitic. The suppression of dissent extends into European streets and schools. France, whose president calls this a conflict between terrorists and a country with democratic values, has banned pro-Palestinian protests. Similar demonstrations have been outlawed in Germany, with some cities doing the same, with vigils for the Gazans killed. And officials in Italy are sending inspectors into schools to root out pro-Palestinian student protesters in case they are driven by racial hatred. People have the right to protest. You can protest in support of Israel too, but definitely also for Palestine. Police have been beating up protesters in France and Germany. And a lot of politicians and in the media saying, now is not the time to protest. I know, now is the time to protest. Raising our public awareness is vital to put pressure to try to find some kind of ceasefire or to stop the violence. If there is a sense somehow that at a sensitive moment it's not appropriate to support a particular cause, then that is the beginning of a slide down towards, frankly, authoritarianism. Over the past several years we've seen a, you know, a massive increase in solidarity with the Palestinian uh, struggle for liberation. And then we've also seen that on the streets, thousands of people in solidarity with the Palestinian people. And this is evidence of the growing chasm between public opinion on one side and official uh, government policy. Long before the attack on the Al-Akhli hospital, news organizations had come up short significantly under-reporting the pogroms on the West Bank, platforming convicted racists who are now part of Israel's far-right government. Normalizing the resulting bombardment of Palestinian civilians, war crimes that have seen one child killed every 15 minutes. Sometimes breaking news, the barrage of information, the endless loop of conjecture and recrimination can actually be distracting. Because central to this story of the pounding of Gaza is the backstory. And when so little of the coverage offers that context, decades of ethnic cleansing, occupation, and the mass killing of Palestinians happening in slow motion, is it any wonder that so many people checking their news feeds are now mystified by what they see? My phone has been ringing off the hook from journalists who want to understand how did we get here? How did this happen? And it's a, a bizarre reality to be living in because this violence did not start 
when Israelis began to be victims of it. Uh, this violence has been consistent against the Palestinian people for a long time. And if you look historically at what we've seen at wars where Israel has bombarded Gaza for uh, days on end, what happens? All the cameras go away, all the attention goes away, and then we hit rewind on the same horror film and do it all over again, except each time the ending is more and more horrific. A great Jewish philosopher once said that the further away you are from the trigger, the more responsible you are. The guy that shoots the gun and pulls the trigger is a soldier in the field. But those that send them and those that arm them are even more responsible than that soldier. And they don't see the CNNs and Fox News calling for the de-escalation. And I don't see the editorials in mainstream media calling for a de-escalation. They are actually supporting the governments that are escalating the situation. Journalists and independent investigators have been locked out of the Gaza Strip. Palestinians there are up against an internet and electricity blackout, making online access and news on the ground very difficult to come by. Social platforms have become a refuge for those able to get online, to find and share information. However, in the last two weeks, we've also seen a wave of disinformation, hate speech, as well as shadow banning and content takedowns by social media companies, all of which are disproportionately affecting Palestinians. Helping us to make sense of what's happening online is Marwa Fatafta. She's with the digital rights group Access Now. Marwa, thank you for speaking with us today. Happy to be here. Let's start with the total siege the Israelis have imposed on Gaza. You've monitored, you've documented how information blackouts are used in a time of war. How concerning is what we're seeing in Gaza right now? Uh, Palestinians in Gaza are under a complete siege and there is, of course, a near complete information blackout. Um, during Israel's uh, bombardment campaign of the Gaza Strip, um, two of the three main telecommunications lines or companies in the Gaza Strip have been bombarded. Um, people are relying currently on only one line of communications with internet and telecommunications disruptions. Um, and that means that people in Gaza are not able to access information, not able to check on their loved ones, they're not able to seek life-saving information, and they're cut off from the world. Um, they have fewer and fewer opportunities to share and tell their stories uh, and to document human rights abuses and, and war crimes. Internet shutdowns provide a convenient cover for perpetrators of atrocities, of human rights abuses, uh, to commit those in, in the dark, uh, to cover the trails of their crimes, uh, and to um, impede or hinder any future possibility of accountability and, and justice. In the first half of this program, we examined some of the genocidal rhetoric that's been coming from Israeli officials and other Israeli figures. How much of that language are you seeing being mirrored online, the calls for violence, the unverified claims? There is a barrage of um, hate speech, incitement to violence, content that is uh, dehumanizing of Palestinians, Islamophobic content, um, anti-Semitic content, and that is all circulating, unfortunately, uh, with little moderation uh, from social media companies. 
There are, of course, many utterances from Israeli officials on social media um, that shows their clear intent on committing genocide, including, for instance, most recently uh, by Prime Minister Netanyahu on X, formerly known as Twitter, that this fight and this war is a war between children of lightness and children of darkness, between humanity and the law of, uh, of, of jungle. And it raises a question about to what extent social media companies are complicit in entertaining and housing and amplifying uh, these genocidal um, rhetorics that are clearly in violation of international humanitarian law and in international law in general? On that point, since Hamas's attack on October 7th, we've seen the Israeli government flood social media with ads, with graphic and provocative imagery. What are you seeing there on that side of things? And how willingly have these online platforms played host to Israeli government messaging? Since Hamas's attack on, on Israel on October 7th, um, the Israeli government has launched a social media campaign, I would say an aggressive social media campaign, to um, shape the narrative and the conversation online. Um, we've seen, uh, for example, the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs had run up to 86 ads on YouTube, uh, some of which shows indeed graphic content um, equating Hamas to ISIS and also showing the, the impact of, uh, of the attacks. And it's clear that, you know, paid targeted advertisement uh, has become a weapon of war. Governments that have the resources and the capacity to produce uh, such material can use these platforms in order to spread war propaganda and in this context to justify the collective punishment of Palestinians and um, war crimes and war, you know, crimes against humanity that we see unfolding before, before our eyes. Palestinians are also saying that social media companies have been taking down their content threatening to close their accounts. Some say they're being shadow banned outright. Tell us what examples you're seeing and are these acts of censorship on these various platforms affecting voices on both sides? We've seen users' accounts being shut down, including very notable users and journalists whose voices are very important. There's also been arbitrary decisions uh, made when, when it comes to removing content. One major concern that is repeatedly being reported is the so-called shadow banning. And whereas companies don't really use that term, um, I've witnessed it myself, uh, and I've seen many re users reporting it that you know their their content is being uh, demoted, uh, downranked, the engagement with this content is, is significantly reduced in comparison to other content not related to Palestine. Unfortunately, we thought that in 2021 we've settled matters, as in it was clear um, that this systematic and discriminatory approach to moderating Palestinian content has been exposed. Um, there is no way for platforms to gaslight users or civil society organizations that this is uh, just the result of a technical glitch, which surprisingly we don't see in other crises, like when Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, we have seen actually proactive uh, statements from different companies uh, uh, stating their unwavering commitment to upholding Ukrainians' right to freedom of expression. Such commitment to human rights have not been extended to Palestinians despite of what companies claim. The user's experience and the reality of what we've uh, documenting uh, states otherwise. Let me leave it with this. Edward Said died 20 years ago. 
the Palestinian writer, best known for his book, Orientalism. He wrote that Muslims and Arabs are essentially seen as either oil suppliers or potential terrorists, that Western media presents crude caricatures of the Islamic world that make the region vulnerable to military aggression. What do you think Edward Said would make of what we've seen in Gaza these past few weeks? I think there has been no truer words spoken to describe what we are witnessing these days. I mean, the level of dehumanization that I see online, um, that I'm also subject to the many Palestinian voices speaking up against the atrocities are subjected to, again, confirm this. If you speak up for Palestinian rights, if you even um, stand against genocide, you are being accused as a Hamas sympathizer, as a terrorist sympathizer. And I'm really genuinely terrified of how this whole uh, war on terrorism will be reenacted. All of us are, are suspects and we have to prove our innocence. We see that unfolding not only on the online world, but also on our streets. I mean, banning of pro-Palestinian protests, Palestinians not being able to get airtime, uh, while IDF soldiers are given plenty of time to, again, uh, spread war propaganda and share desensitize the public as to why Israel has the full right to um, to defend itself in an indiscriminate, unrestrained manner. And unfortunately, Western powers are encouraging and emboldening that. Marwa Fatafta of Access Now, thank you for speaking with us today here at The Listening Post. Thank you. You have been watching a special edition of our program the second episode in our continuing coverage of the war in the Gaza Strip and Israel, when voices on all kinds of news channels, and not just Israel's, are calling for genocidal vengeance and collective punishment and drowning out those advocating for a ceasefire, even a de-escalation. We will continue to report on the consequences of that on the occupied and besieged Palestinians of the Gaza Strip. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.